Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, we speak with Craig Sloan, Executive Vice President of Home Team Sports, on the current state of the sports media landscape. In a world of, of declining ratings, you have products like these regional sports networks that are not only just rating juggernauts on an daily basis, but they're very consistent. So about the only thing that seems to affect them is, is uh, wide swings in team performance. Uh, and other than that, they're basically immune to some of the other things that are troubling the media landscape today. We'll have more of our interview with Craig Sloan coming up. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. And let's start with a story, Scott, that you were all over. You broke about the NFL, Carolina Panthers, and the bids are said to pass $2.5 billion. And if that stands, that's a record for a sports upwards team. Yeah, Forbes said they're worth two point three, And people were wondering whether or not this would actually push higher. Not the greatest market in the NFL, perhaps in need of a new stadium. But two-part story here, yes, the bids are at a certain level now. That set a crazy record, 2-5, and probably going even higher. But the fact that that was enough to make Michael Rubin a fanatic, backed by Joe Tsai, who Alibaba's Joe Tsai, who's also investing in the Brooklyn Nets and will one day take over that franchise, they backed out. It was too rich for their blood. That surprises me because, I mean, those are some high-powered folks, and they got out of the running? Yeah, you're wondering who else, like David Tepper, of Appaloosa Management. He owns a piece of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's involved. You have Jim Goodnight, a local guy. Ben Ben, uh, Navarro, also a local guy. Alan Kestenbaum. These guys can write the check themselves. So you wonder, how high are they going to push this? Is there going to be value investment? Or is this going to be one of those auctions where people say, I want it. I don't care what it costs. I've got the means, so I'm going to do it. Right now at 2-5, suggest that there's some major interest in this thing. <laughs> well, I know Panthers owner, the current Panthers owner, Jerry Richardson. Right now, he's got to be smiling. But it, is this team worth $2.5 billion? You know the adage, Bar. Something is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And take it from somebody who is now house hunting in the suburbs. <laughs> I don't think any of these homes that I'm looking at are worth what everybody else seems to be willing to pay for it. But this is the NFL. There's only so many. It's the crown jewel of U.S. pro sports. The media is only going to go up in terms of revenue for now. There are some, some, some concerns, but if you want in the club, you've got to pay up. That's what these guys are doing. The NFL has been trying to make a push into London. That's what Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the league, said when he spoke to Bloomberg a few years ago. At some point in time, if we continue to be successful, we can work out the logistics and the competitive issues. We think London could could handle a franchise speaking of london guess who's going to play in london at least what we're talking about another story that you've been all over the new york yankees and the boston red sox near an agreement to play two game regular season games in london in june of 2019 every major u.s sports league of the big four will say so that means the nfl the nba and the nhl all three have staged games that count in Europe. Amazing to think that baseball has not yet done it. They've done it in Asia. They've done it in other parts of the world. They have never staged a regular season game in Europe, and they figure it's about time they maybe get some customers on the continent, so to speak. So they're not just sending anybody. They're sending Yankees and Red Sox, and that sends a message. We're sending the best. We're sending the most compelling. We're sending the rivals. We want you folks to find this interesting and come and sample our product. 
not to offend our friends across the pond. Why? Why are we going to now take baseball, which is supposed to be America's game, now going over to London? Now, should I let you answer your own question? Like, do, do you really need me to answer this question? Uh, can people see me hey, rubbing my your fingers, fingers back yeah. to a, yeah, shekels, nickels, but bigger dollars? <laughs> this revenue from national media and let's say international media now, when the broadcasters of tomorrow are, let's take a deep breath because we do this all the time Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> Apple, YouTube. So when those are the broadcasters of tomorrow, they can scale these games. And this is a 162-game season. This is great to cut up into highlights and shoulder programming. Will people pay for that? Can they follow the Yankees and the Red Sox from London? Of course you can. There are no borders anymore. This is a flat world. So this is all the sports league looking to see how do we export not only our games, but our brands and our content and our marks and our T-shirts. How do we sell that around the world? And playing games over there is, not, is just a small part of gaining interest in the rest of the world. By the way, the series will be played at London Stadium when all the details are worked out. Home of West Ham, John Henry, owner of the Red Sox, owns an EPL team in Liverpool, so maybe he can do some soccer business while he's there. Heading into our next sports item of the week, does this sound familiar? There's a new brand of football coming a league where players must train harder and push themselves to the extreme. And did we mention no fair catches? The XFL is February. Guess what league is now going to start up? On top of the XFL, a brand new league is coming. See, it's gotten to the point now where I'm confused. Was that the XFL? Vince McMahon take one or was that the XFL <laughs> reboot take two because now on top of those now we have the Alliance of American Football the interesting part of this and again I don't know if anybody needs more pro football I have no idea but the interesting part of this announcement Michael is who's involved is that this is being done by Charlie Ebersole. Now, that surname might sound familiar. familiar. Dick Ebersole, NBC, partner with Vince McMahon in the original XFL, and also the back. And one thing, they have a TV deal. They have a TV deal with CBS. That's always an important part of the thing. Are you going to be on TV? So they've answered that that portion. And the investment coming, there's there's a lot of them, but I want to highlight two. Founders Fund, that's Peter Thiel, sitting on the board of Facebook, Mm -hmm. and the churning group. Barstool Sports majority holder. Will this appeal to the Barstoolies? How does that all happen? And what did Charlie Ebersole know when, by the way, he's also made making the documentary for the 30 for 30 on the XFL? And why it failed. That, well, yeah. So, so was that really part of his business plan? So more football. Don't know if we need it, but there's another league coming. Those are some of our top business stories this week in sports. Now let's get to this week's interview with Craig Sloan. He's the executive vice president of Home Team Sports, a division of Fox Sports, and an expert when it comes to regional sports networks. We're talking about channels like Yes, the New England Sports Network, and a whole host of others. Craig, thank you very much for joining us. And I want to start by asking you, who really deserves the credit for the Yes Network? Because I'm going to tell you, after more than 20 years of lunches and conversations, I think about 400 people have told me it was their idea. <laughs> I, I think I've met all 400, by the <laughs> yeah, way. I bet you have. <laughs> so I am, I am with you. Uh, you know what? I, I, I don't. I, here's what I can tell you. is uh, Post-launch, 
and, and, and the idea of, of what the value of the Yes Network was versus what uh, the, the folks in the marketplace were paying for the Yes Network. Uh, the Fox folks looked at it as an undervalued asset. And, and at one point uh, back, uh, boy, it's probably over 10 years ago now in my time. I've been in the business now uh, with Fox for over 20 years, so my years get a little bit mixed up. But there were a couple of key folks in the conversation, uh, one of which was Jeff Krolik, uh, who's our, our president of the regional sports networks on the Fox side of the equation, which they have 22 of them. Uh, and, and the other was Tracy Dolgen on the other side, who is the CEO of Yes, and, and having some discussions that ended up obviously involving the Yankees and the, and the Goldman Sachs folks, and, uh, and, and took us into a situation of where we had looked at and admired and, and thought of the Yes Network for many years on the Fox side of the equation, but in the same breath looked at it as, here's a pretty mature business now that it went through some of those early uh, growing pains of distribution, some of the other uh, obstacles that sometimes get in, involved in the, the situation, but then decided to make a, a play and, and, and get into the mix. And I think the thought process, again, at that time was really was this, that striking point of the regional sports networks were undervalued. And so the thought process was on those next terms of those contract agreements with the MVPDs um, across the cable and, and satellite world was, you know, we could make a heck of a lot of, of hay uh, on, on making sure that we got the proper value out of it for what the uh, Yankee fan and Net fans are getting for the S yes Network and, and, the, and, and the like across the, the business. Because uh, in a world of, of declining ratings, you have products like these regional sports networks that are not only just rating juggernauts on a daily basis, but they're very consistent. So about the only thing that seems to affect them is, is uh, wide swings in team performance. Uh, and other than that, they're basically immune to some of the other things that are troubling the media landscape today. Talk about transformational, though, because at the time the Yankees were on MSG, and right. MSG probably thought, well, this is just something we're going to re-sign and keep. I don't think they saw it coming, did they? No, I, I think when, you know, they obviously had it all, right, at that point. They had the Yankees and the Mets. They had uh, all the hockey and, and the basketball. So, uh, yes. You, you, when Wait, they, had, they have basketball in New York? <laughs> little joke, little joke. Uh, and I can't Very wait little. I can't wait until there's some playoff basketball. I moved here 10 years ago, and I've only seen it once. So uh, it would be nice to be around New York and watch the garden light up. So trust me, I'm, I'm rooting for that. Uh, yeah, so the, 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 I would agree with you, Scott, that I think that the, uh, uh, the MSG folks, not necessarily that, that they didn't see it coming, but also thought at that point that they had the dominant position because they also were controlling the distribution, right, the, the, the majority of the distribution in the area. And the, that's usually a winning formula. That being said, uh, I looked, you know, the Yankees looked at it, uh, and as did others, like the Mets after them, uh, that, that they felt like that they could monetize it in a, in a bigger way than just a rights agreement where they had equity stakes in those regional sports networks. After 20-plus years in the business, what major changes have you seen? I would say probably number one, first and foremost, is what Scott sort of alluded to up front, which is RSN. Uh, no one really knew what it was, and, and I would say now I would say the majority of the folks do. Uh, we had to go through a little bit of a negative PR period of where the RSN or the regional sports networks were on the cover of the sports page and the business pages because uh, there was some talk about the expense of the regional sports networks. But again, we look at it as a tremendous value if you're paying across the 12 months of, of a year 
for for one of our regional sports networks, it's it's very likely less than the cost of one ticket to a game. So, uh, and, and you think about the number of events and the type of quality of those events and the way they're being presented to you, uh, we look at it again as a value. So, um, I, I think that the difference wa- has been that that we're now a known entity, and I think that comes in a couple of different uh, ways. One. First and foremost is is where our our, our bread is buttered, and, and that's with the subscribers. They have uh, clearly spoken and said we can't live without a regional sports network. So, as you even look at the skinny bundle that's now happening and and, and happening at a great pace uh, between Directv Now and Sling TV and others, they're all launching with regional sports networks because they can't afford not to at this point. So you're you're looking at a, a skinny bundle from 250 channels, let's say down to perhaps 40 or 50, and, uh, and what they know is in the top uh, 10 options for folks, uh, the regional sports network's in there. So uh, that, that's on the radar now. And then that, you know, the, the secondary component is where I, I uh, spend most of my time, which is talking to, to brands and, and advertising agencies about the power of these regional sports networks for uh, getting involved in from an advertising basis. And, and I'd say that that has also equally gone up. And I'd probably put that date, uh, Michael, on, on uh, right, right around 2008, seems to be when we started to mature. It, it had been around, obviously, in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, and they were certainly had, had a, a great presence in certain local markets. But I think we sort of took a, a, a bigger step forward at around 2008 when a lot of the things were really uh, impaired, again, from not just a ratings perspective, but advertising perspective and, and all the revenues that were coming in. And these regional sports networks looked somewhat immune. We certainly were impacted by all the things that were going on with the economy, but not to the levels that others were. We're talking with Craig Sloan, the executive vice president of Home Team Sports, part of the Fox Sports Media Group. Can you describe how advertising has changed in the sports industry? Because it's way more now than just, oh, put on an electric shave uh, ad. It's, things have changed. Exactly. You know, it used to be uh, put your car ad, put your beer ad, and, and then get your electric shave, and, and then you're good to go. Uh, I, I think what's happened, again, uh, sort of alluding to some of the things I've already said, but, but uh, people have realized that sports, just due to the live nature of it, is a safe area for advertising. Add in the way that the content is about human achievement. Well, Craig, let me now, let me jump in there for a second, Craig. You, yep. Craig, let me jump. You said it's a safe area. Is it safe in knowing that it'll still beat everything else, or is it safe that it'll draw males eighteen to thirty-four? Because, like you said before, you're alluding to we're seeing numbers in all prime time in sport coming down, including the NFL. We've heard a lot about yep. that. How is it safe? All right. So, good question. So, uh, here's what I would say. One, first and foremost, is that. Uh, over 50% of the top programs on TV that are entertainment-based are time-shifted, and therefore, let's not kid ourselves, uh, I've still yet to meet the one person that then time-shifts and then watches the commercials. So people are purposefully you know, building out their own schedule of how they want to watch TV, and then they're skipping through the ads. So start with the safety, I think, Scott, from that perspective for a brand, that they know that when they buy it, that if it's live, that that uh, over 95% of the folks are watching that in the moment, and so that they're, therefore they're watching the commercial ads. So I think the second component, though, to answer your question is there is a, an oversaturation, if you ask me, in, in the sports scene, right? So there's uh, in 2004, there were about 3,400 events broadcast nationally across the country. In 2016, 
there were over 10,000, almost 11,000 events. And I don't, what my contention would be, I don't necessarily believe that, that back in 2004 there was a lot of nationally worthy sporting events that were just sitting on the sidelines. I think what has happened is national networks, many of them that are entertainment-based, saw the writing on the wall, saw declining ratings happening on the entertainment side. To stem that, went towards live programming specifically to sports to add in what they thought was safe. Now, though, you look at the landscape and the game of the week is no longer just the game of the week because there's about seven games of the week, right? So Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. Is all, that all causing the diminution? In, in, is that one of the reasons that ratings are coming so. down, this, that the oversaturation? Yeah, I, I believe so. I just What is special today, right? So on, on an afternoon on Saturday uh, and running through the evening, you could be looking at in the fall anywhere between 50 to 60 football games on. To the average person at home, which one is meaningful? What is the thing that is actually going to draw them in? Where, again, I would say my model, and luckily sort of feel like I stumbled into this area and why I'm still in this area, is that the regional sports network has relevance. We're not trying to say that a game in Cleveland is going to matter to everyone across the country, but we are saying it means a heck of a lot to the folks in eastern Ohio. Uh, we're not saying, again, that even a, a, a team like the Warriors that might have national draw don't have interest uh, across the country, but the passion points and, and, the, and the heavy uh, ratings on a nightly basis are sitting in the Northern California area. So for those reasons, I think it's safe. Um, I think the second component for the, for the, the, uh, the change and, 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 again, why I think we're looking at from an advertising perspective uh, that there's a bit more attention to it is there is a lack of, of proof points other than just in rating measurements uh, coming from in, in from Nielsen, but about actually moving people to transaction. There's a heck of a lot of folks out in the advertising marketplace talking about data and how data is going to help move that forward. But at the end of the day, most of these data uh, points that are coming in have not proven to be able to move sales forward. What I think we have within our regional sports networks is people actually feel differently about a brand that's advertising in that space. They don't look at it as interruption. There's natural breaks in the action. We're filling those breaks and the, and the natural breaks in the action with advertising. And we have short pods that people are actually appreciative of when we bring in interesting ways to, I guess, enhance the game. So if you look at, to Michael's question before, some of the things that have, have changed and ways that it, people have maybe innovated, I think that people are just doing it better. There's better, stronger integrations inside the game. We have a new technology called StatCast that will be across most of our regional sports networks for baseball this year. It's an, enha an enhanced statistical analysis of what's going on with player movement, ball movement, uh, uh, anything from endurance to speed, all those different things that brands can come and associate to and therefore look like they're enhancing the actual broadcast for the fan experience at home. We are chatting with Craig Sloan, Executive Vice President of Home Team Sports, and a guy of my age, Home Team Sports to me was an RSN in D.C. years ago. Exactly, yeah. yes. So, uh, yeah. so I, uh, that was a, a strategic decision. Um, years ago, uh, when Home Team Sports actually uh, was bought out by the folks at Comcast and became Comcast Sportsnet Mid-Atlantic, that name was going away, and I was sitting there with running a business that was uh, called Fox Sportsnet, and yet most of the regional sports networks across the country, as that business bifurcated and Yes Network and others launched, didn't have that Fox Sports Net branding in their local markets. So it became a decision of do we try to reinvent and start something new, or do we just go with a thing that actually describes what the heck we do on a daily basis, which is... Yeah, that's the local part of it all. The, the local part of it. 
Craig, we've been talking about advertising on RSNs, regional sports networks. Let's get a little more specific. Can you tell me who your biggest spenders are? You know, I'd say on a, uh, on a yearly basis, there are folks that invest, I think, across multiple sports. And then there's others that just come in and look at the sport verticals and say, this is the type of thing we want to align with. It, it, it matches up to our brand. But if you, if you sort of look across the, the calendar year, across Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, and our college products, which are our bread and butter across all of our, our regional sports networks, Miller Coors is, is a big partner of ours. T-Mobile is another strong partner of ours. Apple uh, a lot of the movie studios have found that this is a, a big uh, area for them to be able to move tickets in a quick way if you need to uh, an impact over a quick two-week period of time to get people in to buy tickets. People like Sony Pictures and others have come in and, and made, made heavy investments across the year. Has the NFL network with the red zone, will that change college football? Because with the red zone, we can just go to the action when they're within the 20 to see if they score. Will we see that broaden with college football? I would say college is pretty stabilized. And, I, you know, here I say this, and it's going to be recorded, and I'm going to be made a fool because... Well, we, we hope it's going to be recorded. We hope. <laughs> yes, sorry. So, <laughs> and our producer, so, I think he's thinking, I'm not sure he's paying attention. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope he is on this one because I'd like to see if I'm right on this. I can play it back years from now. So um, the thought process is, is, I think, in the college space, that all the shifting that, that really happened in a, in a bigger way, uh, realignment of the schools, then, of course, the subsequent thought process of creating uh, championship uh, events, especially for football, uh, that, that uh, uh, came about, and then monetizing that from the conference perspective with different media rights. So uh, a lot of those deals, Michael, I think are in the long-term uh, uh, way, and, and until something comes together, uh, perhaps uh, the only thing that I think would disrupt it is the Power Five conferences, which I think have flirted with the idea separated off from the NCAA and created some type of different league environment that that would allow for them to make more strategic decisions I think together today they operate independently they cut their media deals separately they create their alliances for these national networks uh, that they're that they're creating like the Big Ten network which has been in place for quite a while now uh, I think over 11 years now and, and Fox owns uh, the majority of that of that network uh, the uh, ESPN owned uh, SEC network and, and, and about to launch the ACC network and as well as the Pac-12 networks, they all operate with, with the uh, thought process of the schools, the universities, and the, and the uh, commissioners really driving those decisions. So long went away of me saying, I don't see the red zone coming into that space uh, until uh, something brings those Power Five conferences together. We can see every U.S. major sport except Rattlesnake handling whatever <laughs> but have we at a point where it is oversaturated I, I think i think that we have a little bit more runway in front of us but i will say this i think the strong will survive these next set of negotiations that will happen with the mvpds for the these networks will explain be mvpd for those who don't know mvpd to, uh, let, good, let's good keep point. it common and what and what, what who they are and what they do Good point. Uh, let, let me put some brands on it. So it's it's your cable provider, your satellite uh, uh, video provider, and now in the new case, as I mentioned a little bit before, these virtual MVPDs, which are just, uh, again, broadband-based. So you're getting your video service not through a pipe but through an actual uh, uh, broadband uh, uh, service that's coming into your home and then projected throughout your house. So the thought process, I think, for, for what's going on now with Comcast and, and with uh, DirecTV and, and uh, DISH 
and, and charter the four biggest ones that control about 80% of the country now at this point, uh, is that it's a battle between big media companies and, and, and then big distributors. And so what I think will end up happening, this is you know, my thought at least, is to say I don't know whether, and probably more on the entertainment side, but certainly even on the sports side, that everything that exists today will survive in the next round of negotiations. I think that the strong will survive. So the, po- the folks that have the most relevance, that have the most strong content, that can prove their value, will have to be able to be distributed. Fans will, will want it. And then subsequently, they will, uh, if, if they don't get it, uh, will we'll make switches between uh, uh, providers. So I think today I would say that there's still a little bit more runway, but I do think that that oversaturation is dangerously close because of the fact, again, that there's some things on air right now that, that probably wouldn't have been and probably don't necessarily need to be uh, that, that uh, aren't drawing necessarily the large audiences that you would anticipate. Let's name some things. What does it need to be out there? All right. So I, I think if you look at the uh, the amount of, of games that are uh, broadcast in the college football space and college basketball space, there's certainly concern there. If you look at, again, I think our position at the, on the, on the uh, home team sports side, handling two main conferences, the, the Big Ten Network and Pac-12 Network, we like our position because, again, we're not saying that those games are relevant to everybody on every night across the country. We are saying for Big Ten conference fans and for the Pac-12 conference fans, the content that we're providing is relevant to those folks. When you're broadcasting a game of Georgia State versus Georgia Southern, as an example, is that a nationally worthy broadcast? And it's no offense to both of those fine universities, but in the same breath, I don't know necessarily whether that would have been, and probably if I went back in time, wasn't broadcast, but I would imagine this fall that game or something like it will be on TV. Uh, I I think that those things are now just causing more confusion uh, certainly in the advertising marketplace. So think about what my folks go through on a daily basis. They're going out and meeting with brands, and they're going out and meeting with advertising agencies, and, and the, to discern the difference between that game or a Georgia Tech game or a Georgia game. Uh, uh, if you're not a sports fan, they all sound about the same, and, and really, as we know, uh, that are in the sports space, there's a big difference between University of Georgia and, and a game that might be at a smaller school. We are chatting with Craig Sloan, the Executive Vice President of Home Team Sports, And, Craig, I'm going to say the buzzword in the industry these days, millennials, digital. Surely the conversation has changed between you, the brands, the advertising agencies in the past two, three, four years. And that buying that commercial just ain't enough anymore. It's how do you you approach digital? How do we win younger customers? And is this the right place to spend our money? Absolutely. Um, And I I would say this. You know, I've got... um, a pretty good focus group in my own home with my kids, uh, a little bit behind the millennials, but not too dissimilar to some of the same uh, uh, habits that we see that we've studied through our research regarding their their viewing behaviors. Are they paid research groups? These are, yeah, these, or just free my, room and board. Yeah, just free room and board. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if they would even help around the house, I would be giving them a heck of a lot more than what I give them today. Uh, but I will say this: uh, you know, I do look at it from a perspective of the the millennials that you're referring to, which are increasing in buying power, increasing in importance to the brands and and the companies that we speak to on a regular basis, 
and they don't view the world the same way. They really don't. I, I do think that there is certain lifestyle things that are generational, right? You, you settle down, you, you get married, you buy a home, and then you're going to want video service to your home. I think that that process, for the most part, is, is pretty stable. It just probably won't be at the same adoption rate that it has been for previous generations. So what do people do in, in lieu of that? And I think if, as you're talking about the millennials in particular, yeah, there has to be other ways that we're going to engage them. So what I love and probably the, most, uh, the, the biggest impact I've seen over the last few years to our business has been the right for the leagues to allow our regional sports networks, of course, with a few bucks uh, changing hands, but to be able to stream games in local markets. That was something that was afforded a few years ahead of us to the national networks, and we sat on the sidelines, you know, wondering why, why it was taking so long for us to be able to have a, an ability to broadcast and make it a, a better experience for our consumers uh, and fans to be able to watch games uh, anywhere uh, they want and whenever they want. Now that's afforded to them. So the, the average Yankee fan or, or, or home team fan across the country that has a regional sports network that they pay for through their cable company or their satellite company, they can now, just through an authenticated process, watch their home team NBA, NHL, and MLB games, uh, and, and our college content as well, just through a one-time authentication process. And I don't think people really realize that yet. That was the key yeah. word, though, authentication. That's the key yeah. word. You're paying, you have to pay to have that right. You, you do, but you're only paying the one time. I think what the biggest thing that we have is still just that people to sit and actually realize this is different than an over-the-top service where we're asking for an additional fee. It literally is, if you're paying for it already once, we're not, we're not making you pay for it again. We're just giving you access in the TV Everywhere model to be able to watch it anywhere and, uh, you'd like. And, and for those like the, uh, us, other than you, Scott, who have a long commute, you know, we appreciate that. And I, I'm watching on a nightly basis now, and it can be afforded that, uh, that we're just a couple short years ago, I, di I couldn't. The millennials we're seeing are engaging at a higher rate, as you would imagine. They are more tech-savvy. They have uh, more of an interest of just checking in and seeing what's going on with the broadcast. And we're seeing long duration times uh, with, with that content, so longer than what we anticipate, especially for millennials. So uh, we've got to be able to do that. We're cutting up content on an hourly basis, if not a, you know, a minute-by-minute basis, uh, to feed the, the, their thirst and, and, and satiate the appetite that they have for more content. And we're putting that out through, obviously, as you'd imagine, social platforms and other platforms that we own uh, that are going to give them more of an ability to, to engage. I, I would say this overall. The fan is winning. If you look at, again, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the difference between what somebody had, where not every game was broadcast, where they certainly wouldn't be able to watch it on any device. That wasn't even a, a thought, I think, you know, that, at that point. And to be able to have them served up in short bits of content that are snackable and, and something that they want on a regular basis, uh, those things were just never afforded us. We had to sit and program it or, or, or try to watch it when it was on and catch that story that you probably would have missed. Now there's no reason to miss it because we're putting it out there in multiple ways. So why is everybody so darn upset about the cost of their monthly cable bill? You know, I, I, I do think that it's a value perspective. People don't complain when they believe that they're getting the right value. That value equation at certain, some point, and I think that threshold was when the average consumer was sitting paying $150 a month and trying to figure out, again, that is in a bundled way, and I'm not trying to disparage our, our partners. I think that they have uh, done a good job, I think, coming back now and looking at this from a different perspective. The one size does not fit all. So that, that large bundled plan, rather than just say, I'm just going to hold to that, those are the folks that are leading the way with DirecTV now, with the skinnier bundle coming across now from some of the cable companies. 
that are being offered and afforded somebody who might not be in that same situation and doesn't necessarily want that large of a package and can afford maybe something in that 40 to 50 to 60 dollar range and and wouldn't complain so i i think you're going to start to see that 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 uh, anger and and some of the uh, uh, comments uh, probably wane a bit as they get that value equation right. Well, I want to go back to different generations because I'm an old geezer. Of and, course you do. Yes, <laughs> I, and, and I, you know, I'm ready to go warm up the Dumont and watch the Rocky Marciano fight. So, what I want to know is 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 there a place for a guy like me in this landscape by cracking? So in which way, Michael? Are, are just uh, whether we're whether you're going to be served the, the type of things you want, whether you're going to have the options that you want. Well, both. Uh, am I is, am I just uh, out of luck? Am, am I being phased out? I don't think. I definitely don't think you're being phased out. Here's what I would say: is that I, I think that the technology side of the equation is going to be a complementary piece. If it was going to be in lieu of, I think we would, and 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 probably my father included. Uh, would be in a situation of where a big sports fan, and if it was only available in certain ways, I don't know whether we'd keep up on the technology side of the equation. That being said, I think that these, since these components are, are additive, and it's not just for the regional sports networks, let me not say it that, because there's some really great offerings that are out there now and, and, and sports publications and different uh, ways that you can get content that, that are additive to the process and not just in lieu of. The only thing I think where it could be, be uh, and it was in danger of, of really, um, I guess, not uh, uh, taking care of all, is that thought process of, is the price just too high? And is it going to be an either-or scenario? Either you can afford to have it, and then you're an actively engaged uh, fan, or you can't afford to have it. And if you really look at the stadium situation, that's sort of what you have, right? It's a large corporate base filling the lower bowls of most of the arenas and stadiums. And then you're talking about a fan base that, if they can afford it, are sitting in the upper tiers. And, and I'm, I know I'm generalizing, but there is a difference between what somebody could afford and maybe to the generations you're talking about, Michael, you know, to go to a game and with your family especially and to be able to park, uh, eat, and sit and enjoy a game is a totally different uh, cost structure today than it was you know, in, in previous generations. Uh, I don't think that same thing is, is happening on the media side of the equation. I think is again, a more additive process. And lastly for you, Craig, let's close on this. We all know that Fox is looking to unload some assets. The RSNs are part of that. Is, is that where the value is now? Is, is this is what driving the media dollars, the, the regional sports networks, and the live content? I would say that the evidence is in that deal structure. Yes, I would, uh, I would, I would support that. So uh, a couple key components, I think, to that, Scott. So one, one of which is uh, the, the fact that the uh, size of the overall deal and then the value of the RSNs within that, that the RSNs were valued uh, in that deal at about three times the value of the other cable networks that Fox put into that deal combined. So, uh, uh, and that's even without obviously fully national distribution on their on their regional sports network business. Um, that is a, a significant part of the equation. The secondary component, and why I think it was so attractive for Disney to come into it, is it is a complementary piece to something that they had been concerned about, which is perhaps oversaturation. To Michael's point before, um, or just the f- fact that it's it's speaking one one game to all that they like the idea of the regional sports networks because it does help in a protection mode, uh, and, and Fox has enjoyed that over the years to, to be able to go into a di- uh, discussion regarding distribution when you have the, the hammer, if you will, of something that people feel like they can't live without. 
We did a study with Nielsen just as recently as last year, and essentially the regional sports network came out tops on a passion index that where people said, literally, you had a choice, one or the other, one or the other. It was almost like a March Madness game, and you went through this study and had to pick it out, uh, what, what you could not live without. And the regional sports networks went above all cable networks, and they went above all the broadcast networks as the number one most valued uh, uh, item that they felt like they couldn't live without. Right behind the Lifetime Network and Michael Barr's house. <laughs> <laughs> well, Craig Sloan, EVP of Home Team Sports, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for Thank having you, me. Thank you, sir. Takeaways, <laughs> I guess speaking as an old geezer, and, and I asked Craig this, is there a place for me now in this broad world of viewing sports because I just want to simply turn on the TV and and watch something. But now it is way beyond that. Did you not refer to the Dumont in your... That's right. <laughs> exactly. The takeaway for me is still the power of sport. What they said was, we're going to be brand agnostic. We don't care what network it is. We don't care about the team. We don't care about the league. What we care about are local sports fans. How can we sell to the local sports fan which is very energetic, we'll use a kind word, about their sports team. So they decided to bundle it all up and sell it as one bid package to advertisers. That's been the secret sauce. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. Now, this one you might have to think about. 53. Yeah, knee-jerk. I have no idea. 53. <laughs> we don't, so everybody knows, we don't plan these most of the time. We don't plan these ahead of time. And for me to kind of crawl in your head and understand where you're going, that's a scary proposition. <laughs> so, I, 53, I, I, don't, I, I have no idea. 53, the number of years ABC has been the broadcaster of the Indianapolis 500, counting this year. Oh, because now it's switching to NBC. It is now switching to NBC in 2019. They shared the package before, but now ABC wants out. Well, they but ABC has always had the Indianapolis 500. Okay. They've shared the, the IndyCar package, wow, where okay. NBC and ABC would broadcast different races. But the Indy 500 has always been on ABC and this is it. This is this is an end of an era coming up. This is the final Indy 500 on ABC coming up in May. So now you can tell the world that my limited knowledge of auto racing extends far beyond NASCAR. You can attach that to Indy as well, where I know almost nothing, but they drink milk when they win. I'm bumming. Boom. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak to the biggest and brightest in the world of sports business. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 